Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweets. Speak to me, warriors. That's right, everybody. You're back here at ESSR Feature with our new series, It's Still Real to Me, Damn It. And today, we're looking at yet another installment of our wrestling documentary, a often forgotten wrestling documentary, a documentary that's not on the network. It's made it a pain in the arse to find. And, but thankfully, we've managed to find it via legal means. I am your host for today, Scott McLeod, and we are talking about the self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior, the 2005 smear campaign, hit piece, call it whatever you want. I'll be calling it a few things throughout the next hour. Uh, produced by WWE without the Ultimate Warrior's involvement back in 2005. And joining me to talk about this, well, it certainly was a thing, uh, my esteemed panel. First off, a man who, if he kept at the wrestling, he too could have been squashed by somebody the calibre of the Ultimate Warrior at a WrestleMania, the same way Triple H was back in 96. He hails tonight from parts unknown, but still has better Wi-Fi from there than David Hockley on a draft selection show. It is Andy Murray. Come on in, we're nightmares are the best part of my day. I was so, <laughs> I was so happy. I was like, like, I seem your, your intro, but... Uh, <laughs> about fucking the, around the warrior I called you Andy Murray not Andy Mitchell oh I did yeah it's fine uh, I'd rather be uh, named after the two time uh, Wimbledon champion than uh, Andrew Mitchell who's not won anything other than the hearts and desires of uh, the ESSR team hopefully <laughs> Andy Murray interviews I'm happy you're here not him he's a dull bastard is, is big Andy Murray <laughs> and also joyous a man who takes all the notes a man who has the most districity, whatever the fuck that is. He is Chris Murray. Hello, guys. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited for this. You know what? We started this series with a show on a man who is often hated by wrestling fans, but he was at one point loved. And now we are back with our second episode looking at a man who was once loved by wrestling fans and is now often hated. So I'm glad we've got a theme going. Scott, if I can do a quick plug before we start. Uh-huh. Go ahead. So, of course, we are reviewing the self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior, which, as you have mentioned, is not on the WWE Network, which means, surely, it is perfectly legal for us to promote nefarious means as to how to get a hold of it. So... You know, if you were to want to pause this podcast and go away and watch the documentary, then you could buy it off of eBay or Amazon. Or if you were to search for the self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior and then put the word VO afterwards, then maybe there is some sort of link there that you could watch it on. You can watch it as the same photo quality as it was done in 2005. Oh. Quality of this link, I don't know if it was the same, but that's how it was there, or just a bad link. But Jesus, the audio quality of this, and I don't know about you guys, I, I had to, the thing buffered and then went back to the start four times when I was watching this, making this hour 34 minute documentary feel even longer than it already felt because I don't know about you, but despite it being an hour and a half, 
they really felt like they were fucking stretching this. this <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, this is a weird time where WWF, any mention of that uh, through footage is bleeped out, and any WWF logos are seeming like most mm. of them were. Don't know if you guys noticed that as well. They had the fortunate stuff of doing it before Attitude Era, so it was like not a lot was blurred, but there was a few uh, WWF uh, mentions where the F part would get blocked out. I won't be the first to say this, but somebody once pointed out, should they not have just bleeped the first W so that it still says WF and still sounds kind of (laughs) right? But yeah, Chris has laid out all the means you can watch it, you know, BBO or whatever he said, Amazon, eBay, all companies that maybe will be in contention to buy WWE at some point in 2023. Vo, if you are looking, is spelled V-E-O-H. I'm not telling you to go to the website. I'm just telling you how to spell the website. Yeah, because Walt Warrior is a symbol of, you know, symbol of hero- heroism and all that crap. And he's got an award named after him in the Hall of Fame. It's fair to the people who have got it. Just don't use him as your, your idol, you know. Look to more actual points of inspiration, you know, like the people who actually won the Warrior Award. <laughs> but... Let's talk about this documentary. It was released on home video by the WWE in, on September 27th, 2005. This is an interesting point for WWE as this is when the time they, they were like, well, we bought most of our competition. We bought all these territories back in the 80s. We bought WCW. ECW is gone and we now own it. We own like, all their intellectual property that is from it. So they just start pumping out these documentaries to take advantage of their video library and also they can show footage. The DVD set would also come with additional matches. We don't get additional matches. We get clips from matches in the documentary, but if you had it on the original DVD, you'd probably have full-on Warrior matches. But I think I just saw I saw enough of Warrior wrestling just through the clips they showed in this documentary, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> but So they're, they're making some very interesting documentaries. This time, Chris, you know, you had the rise and fall of WCW, the rise and fall of ECW, which in its own way showed the popularity of ECW, which led to One Night Stand, and then subsequently WWE, ECW, and everything that came with that. Monday Night War, that documentary, and then this documentary about Ultimate Warrior. Had you ever seen this documentary before you sat down to watch it for this, Chris? This is the first time I've ever seen it. I vividly remember this coming out. I remember they had adverts for this on Raw and SmackDown at the time. And I remember thinking, wow, they've really not painted him in a great light. Because up until this point, I don't think I'd seen many wrestling documentaries. I'd never seen Beyond the Mat, which would have been, you know, about 10 years prior to this I'd only ever seen like you know the VHS clip affairs that you'd get from Blockbuster or something at the time global video um, so yeah this was like new territory for me when I watched this the other night and I really saw a different side to a lot of the people that were in this video you know wrestling uh, commentators for the large part are very much painted as like the good guys especially guys like JR Mean Gene always painted as the good guys and uh yeah they they let some they let some harsh truths out in this <laughs> and what about you had you ever seen this documentary before i, I actually did i first watched it i think just maybe a year or so after it was released i remember a friend of mine uh, had the uh dvd at the time so i remember watching it and uh so this is the second time i watched that I know you didn't like it, Scott, and I think Chris mentioned he was. I didn't. I didn't mind it. It's. I think it's a quite an interesting uh, documentary because it does very well at separating both the character of the Ultimate Warrior and the guy behind him. 
uh, Jim Helwig. And uh, again, I actually had the luxury of uh, speeding up the, the, <laughs> the playback speed to 1.5 speed, so I managed to fire through that in 45 minutes. So I think that's probably why it was a much more pleasant time. Probably, yeah, the buffering on the high end really <laughs> this process there it made me feel like age like god is this thing not over yet <laughs> but I, like i'd never seen this i've heard about it it's almost kind of an infamous like documentary and you know we're really covering all the bases here because you know, a bunch of people might not like punk the documentary that we talked about last time the hell of a thing put together and i think i've just got such a high standard for wrestling documentaries i just i love a good wrestling documentary which made it more offensive to myself that i didn't like this when i had to sit through it uh, I think uh, I do think the the sort of the quality of WWE's obviously documentaries has got a hell of a lot better because some of the music and it was just that was awful and but the talking heads the people they actually got doing the sort of the voice the voices of the D, the DVD so to speak the, was really interesting they had like a really good sort of um, collection of like old managers and commentators and wrestlers and stuff having their opinion on the Warrior. Mm-hmm. Uh, Talk about some reviews of this uh, documentary. I didn't realise that documentaries, especially wrestling ones, can get ratings on IMDb. Apparently IMDb rated this as 0.5 out of 10. <laughs> there you go. Uh, 411 Mania reviewed this documentary, giving it a mild recommendation, saying it's not as great as a DVD, but it's a pretty good example of rock locker room culture in the 80s WWF. Wrestle crap in 2011 said that it chronicles the very worst of wrestling at that period. Uh, during his Ultimate Warrior even acknowledged the DVD during his Hall of Fame induction saying, quote, this DVD, the DVD was just wrong, that's all. It did make me angry, but it was also very hurtful. Uh, Warrior is, uh, was invited to take part in the documentary. I don't think they, he knew what it was going to be called or what the nature of the documentary was going to be when he was asked about it, but he basically declined because he was very much on the outs with WWE at that point, wouldn't make amends till right before his Hall of Fame induction and subsequent death a few days later, back in 2014. But uh, he did think enough of this documentary to file a lawsuit against WWE in January of 2006. I was assuming a sort of defamation of character style lawsuit. It was to go on for three years until some point in 2009 it was ultimately dismissed. Yeah, I felt like this was... I mean, let's just get out of there quickly. I thought that this was quite harsh. I felt like to have what maybe 10 people, upwards of 10 people who were around Warrior for his whole WWF and WCW career, just ragging on him um, for the whole 90 minutes, especially like now that we've got the benefit of hindsight, you know, since this has been released, Warrior's made amends with WWE. He's came back, did the Hall of Fame, did the Hall of Fame speech. He's now got the award and he also has since passed away. This this has aged quite badly, I think. However, there were loads of benefits of it. Um that like I really enjoyed this this retelling of Warrior's career. Just uh going by what you said two minutes ago, Scott, about how Warrior was kind of hurt by it and he was offered to be in it as well. I read a thing that I think came from Bruce Pritchard that said that they didn't actually mean for this to turn out this way. And I'm sure you guys have seen this, but basically as soon as they sat people down, like I'm guessing Vince, JR, Lawler, Bobby the Brain Heenan is really scathing in this. As soon as they sat them down to do these interviews about Warrior's career, everyone just kind of turned on him. And that sort of set the tone for the whole documentary afterwards. 
Yeah, it was like I was reading into that as well. It said it was just a case of when no one really had anything pleasant to say about him. When you actually look at like what Edge and Christian and Chris Jericho said, they're the most positive because they didn't have any working relationship. It was everyone who had something nasty to say all had like a working relationship with him. And as we all know, it's like it, Jim Helwig is just he's not a nice guy. You, you, it doesn't take much to have a Google in controversy and see the the type of stuff he was saying during the time. So it's like. I feel like it's, although that new documentary is painting them in a better light, I feel this kind of shows you more of who the guy is behind the warrior. It's like he's just a bit of a dick. Well, I say a bit of a dick, he's a massive dick. (laughs) So that's why I kind of enjoy it as well. You don't really see WWE shitting on their own stars at that calibre, but there's like, there's like some truth into how much of a a knob uh, Jim Helwig is. Yeah, I did have that quote uh, that you mentioned, Chris, somewhere in my notes. Yeah, I believe it was from a 2016 or 2017 episode of Something to Wrestle With, although I think nowadays we do take things that Bruce Pritchard says with a slight uh, pinch of salt, given that his history of being a right-hand man to Vince and, you know, as his podcast has gone on before his recent you know, leaving of WWE this time around, he was very much defensive of a lot of WWE decisions on that show whenever they're brought up. But... Yeah, we, we have talking heads in this, like JR, King, Ted DiBiase, Bobby Heenan, Vince, uh, those kind of people. Steve Lombardi, the Brooklyn Brawler, also mm-hmm. makes a few appearances here. And uh, we do have Edge, Christian, and Chris Jericho as kind of guys who grew up watching it, given that almost fan perspective of of what it was like to grow up watching a character like Don't Ultimate Warrior, which is interesting given it came out in, two, in September. They also would have filmed ages in advance and edited together over a series of time. But by this point, Jericho's already left. He left the night after SummerSlam to pursue his amount and stuff and further dedicate his time to Fozzie. And like a few weeks after this, Christian would leave shortly after the No Mercy pay-per-view, showing up about a month later in TNA as a Christian Cage. So it's interesting to see that uh, these three, by the time this comes out, only one of them still left in the fucking company. <laughs> but <laughs> I also agree with you guys because I know going on this, I was looking at this, I tried to look, let's look at it as a as a hit piece, as what it basically was and not as a wrestling documentary. But even then, it's not even a great hit piece because like you have Dark Side of the Ring that came out last year about Warrior that was a was a bit more scathing showing him like his ex wife talking about the story at times she found out he was cheating on her on the road and everything. And then even the WWE A and E documentary everyone thought, oh this is gonna you know overly satirize and you know WWE will rewrite the story of his life. Even that includes a clip of him trying to film an apology to a kid he snubbed and then basically saying Vince like, why the fuck do I have to do this? And Vince saying, it's a fucking work. It's like, those people <laughs> are worse flight than anything they could even say. And this is books of written by other wrestlers like Bret Hart that painted him in a worse flight than this. And I do think, because it does take a while for guys to really let loose their feelings, except for Bobby Heenan, he pretty much, <laughs> right here, you know out of everyone, he probably hates them the most. Yeah. The thing is, though, like, Warrior had nasty things to say about uh, Bobby the Brave and Human as well when he got cancer, and he said that he was, he was glad he got cancer, and it's been like, whoa, a bit harsh, and now what is it, the Warrior world, they're giving it out to people who have, like, I don't know, it's just, again, I, I can't really defend the guy when you've, like, listened to some of the stuff he's, he's like, saying and stuff, you know, it's, it's kind of, he's a bit of a nasty piece of work. Yeah, I think Bobby Heenan is cancer would kind of, really take it a nasty turn a few years later where he had to have part of his jaw removed which would affect his ability mm. to speak. So he's taking advantage of that little time he has with his voice left and is using it to spew nothing but hatred in the direction <laughs> of the warrior. And when you hear the stories of the way they'd have those weasel matches and the way that Warrior basically had zero regard for, for Heenan's safety, especially when he was 
in the press. Like, you see the clip from like WrestleMania 5 post him being screwed at the IC title. The way that Bobby lands, pretty much all the impact on his shoulder and face. Chris, it, it's really nasty to watch. And they show it from a few different angles. Yeah, so here's my my issue with that. That was actually one of the main notes that I took of this documentary is that so much of this was just ragging on his wrestling ability. But yeah. everyone in the WWF would have been at Warriors level at some point. Mm. Mm. And everyone should and could have got some sort of support to make their wrestling better. And I'm not defending Warrior and saying that, oh, nobody helped him with anything. I'm sure Warrior was not very willing to listen to any sort of wrestling help. But like so many guys in this are like, oh, I knew nothing about wrestling without really making any attempt to make him any better. That that bugged me when we're when we got to the bit about uh Warrior and Andre, which is a feud that I actually didn't know anything about. Uh it seemed quite brief and I don't think it was on pay-per-view at any point. But they they tell that great story about Andre slowing down Warrior as he's sort of hit him hitting him for the running clothesline so that Andre falls into the ropes. Um Andre Andre says himself he's like ah yeah I'll make him learn just stuff like that. That's actually helping Warrior. Whereas mm. everyone else is just like, ah, you suck. You can't do a press slam and stuff like this. What what bugs me is like, Warrior is a guy like maybe Ryback or like Ronda Rousey, Brock Lesnar, people who just have this like unbridled talent that needs to be just sort of tapered and sent in a specific direction. And it seems like a lot around a lot of wrestlers around this time weren't really supporting them and trainers as well weren't really supporting them enough. Yeah, I mean, I'd heard that story about the stuff with Andre and like just he does these clothesline things yeah. too, and he knocks Andre back and then does that second night. And so the third night, he sticks his fist out. And you've seen the pictures of like Andre's massive hands. Like <laughs> Andre won't, wouldn't take shit. I mean, you can kind of see where Andre's coming from. Like he needs people to be careful with him because this, I think that feud would have been late '89. And then I think his last proper preview match, Andre, was at SummerSlam the following. Sorry. Was at WrestleMania six the following year, so obviously you got to think the condition that Andre is in. Like if anyone's ever seen yeah. Andre's documentary, like talk about how poor he self was, basically like the massive size and dealing with gigantism and having a guy like Warrior showing no regard for your physical well-being did seem to be an issue with Andre. Yeah, I just kind of want to follow up with what Chris was saying there about how the sort of the way they're talking about the warrior as well, and it's the way they're saying about his promos. And I said, oh, we didn't really understand what you were saying. And I was like, look, at, he was doing the exact same stuff as Savage was doing in Hulk Hogan. It was just intense. So it's like stuff like that where it's like they're 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 quick to be like, oh, like we don't really know what he's doing, and he's like saying this crazy stuff. And it's like, have you not heard the cream of the crop promo by Randy Savage? You know, or Hulk Hogan talking about how his kids turn them on, and it's like, what? You know, <laughs> it's just like it is quite strange. And um, what was funny as well, I saw Sergeant Slaughter was like, oh, he sounded like Darth Vader, and I was like, which Star Wars are you watching, mate? Like, <laughs> Darth Vader doesn't talk like that. <laughs> I know, like, it's it's weird. I think Warrior is definitely an advert for why scripted promos can sometimes be a good thing because yeah. it seems to be an era where. Basically, stick them in front of a screen. You got two minutes, just just talk, like about the guy you're wrestling or whatever city you're going to be wrestling in, and, mm. and or you're like just get on. And, like with such an issue, try and read them in and give them bullet points. Tell them what you want them to say. And as long as he gets those clear points out, then you're you're fucking the golden. Thing is, 
the thing is, though, is like they can't. Although they're all shitting on him on the documentary, they can't hide the reaction of the audience. They can't hide that at all because every time he they show a clip of him running in or doing something or winning a match, it's like the audience are just going absolutely. They're they're going bananas, as uh, Monson would say, and he is kind of like a prototype. Uh, that cartoon version of Goldberg because he just runs in, does his thing, and then he's left. And you know, I think that was appealing to like a lot of kids back in the day, where it was just this colourful character was running and just like, you know, he didn't need to learn more because it was like, well, what else is it? He doesn't need to do like a, a an hour classic because that's not what people pay to see. They pay to see him run in, destroy, and then kind of run out, run away again. Well, going back to like what you told me, his wrestler ability, they do spend a few minutes like. About how great his music was and how it fit the entrances, it's like the run to the ring. But even Jericho and that kind of joke, like, yeah, he'd be kind of blown up by the time he got to the ring because sometimes those <laughs> rounds really were long. And then, like, JR and DBS would be silly, like, yeah, you had to then keep the matches short after that because he was already gassed. And, and the way he kind of inadvertently does DBS, he kind of bury Hercules in a way. I say, like, Hercules had more understanding of wrestling, but they were both body guys because you had to keep their matches short, otherwise, they'd stink the joint up. Which is kind of harsh on Hercules's mm-hmm. end, but during that talk, we talk about the music, which is ultimately, admittedly, great music. It always got a reaction and it was an integral part of the character. You get a very brief, especially for this time, it's surprising little clip of an interview with Jim Johnson, mm-hmm. who, much of a lyrical genius as he is, you can tell why he doesn't do interviews because you can tell he's finding it difficult. Like this stuff kind of comes natural to him, so he doesn't know how to explain how he comes up with it. Yeah, I, I actually think that's one of the best bits of this whole documentary is when they get Jim Johnson on. Because obviously, you know, he, he he wrote every good wrestling theme that is mm. in wrestling. And uh, he's obviously not uh, not been a part of the company for, what, 10 years now? I think it's 2013 or 14. Might be wrong. But um, he, it, 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 he gives us a story behind one of the mm. most iconic wrestling theme tunes of all time. And uh, I think it was Slaughter. Because, you know, they... They really didn't want to say anything nice about him. But I think it was Slaughter that said the music that he had meant a lot more than other people's music. And, you know, at this time, not a lot of wrestlers would have had like proper, decent music where you've, you've got this huge, impactful, punching you in the face tune that Warrior comes out to. Um, you mentioned the bit with Hercules. After that, he had his um, entrance for his match with Honky Tonk Man for the IC title. Mm. I think that's one of the best entrances, not matches, but one of the best entrances of the whole sort of Hulkamania era. It's just such a good moment. And it's all down to his blistering run to the ring uh, and the, the tune that's playing in the background. Mm-hmm. I also love going back to the start of the documentary. Uh, you even though they own all this footage, is still clearly not interested in acknowledging too many other places. Because you talk about where he's from, they run through the other territories he wrestled for in about three minutes, if that. Mm. And they're like, I think because he's in TNA, only mildly acknowledging Sting, like, oh, his partner, you know, Steve. And he goes, oh, yeah, the guy who'd go on to become Sting, and then they just move on, like, don't mention Sting. Unless it's a WCW documentary, but don't mention. And then they go into the creation of the character, which leads to, like, the face paint, about how... They do admit that that was a great look and it, it captured mm-hmm. the music. But they also do joke about he's always named the, the Dingo Warrior. Like, and Vince is like, we didn't even know what a Dingo was. Yeah, I can imagine Vince just being like, Dingo, what the hell is that? And I'm just like, well, he's the ultimate warrior. And then we go through 
what I imagine wasn't an exaggeration, probably was Vince's product because they didn't want to call him a warrior in the begin with. Like, so we already got the Road Warriors, we got the the modern day warrior, Kerry Von Eric, and they're like, what do we call him? You know, he's bigger than those other warriors. He's ultimate. He's, that's it. He's the ultimate warrior. <laughs> Ironically, when the Road Warriors and Kerry Von Eric came to the WWF eventually, I think all four of those guys would be on a, t- a Survivor Series team called the Warriors at one point. It I didn't realise that. That's quite good, actually. Ah, it was destiny, I tell you. <laughs> Just good booking. Something that Vince uh, used to do back in the day. <laughs> oh, and, and also Vince, like I think some of the examples when Vince pops up are times where, like, yeah, he's an arsehole and you can you know, give him shit for like being like, like unsafe sometimes with wrestlers, but there are times where Vince isn't in the right as well, where you really get annoyed a bit, like, Especially when they talk about, oh, he had to employ these cheap tricks to get there, and these cartoony storylines, like this thing with Papa Shango, because he couldn't, you know, create drama in the match. Like, surely that's on you. So you're helping book these storylines yeah. to hide because you've invested all this stuff in a guy who, by your admission, you don't think can really create that drama in the ring. See, see, like with the Warrior character, like he fits in that era. As like when you think Hogan and and Macho Man, you also think Warrior is like he fits in that cartoon sort of rock and roll era. And it's again, as I sort of brought up, it's like every time that music hits, everyone's like just going wild. And it's just like the guy was a draw. Like say, I know they're just all shitting on him, but that's a reason why he brought him back two more times. Uh, free if you uh, talk about when he's Hall of Fame. But it's like there was someone about him that is like although. Yeah, like not a lot of people in the back like him. Yeah, he's limited with what he does, but it's you know people like him. Like, does people will watch when he comes running down the ramp? Mm-hmm. I also think that um, you know they're they're critical of you know Warrior versus Shango. You know, looking back on it from two thousand five or two thousand six, whenever this was. But see if you ask any person who watched wrestling in the nineties. I guarantee you that that Shango stuff will be one of their favorite memories because goofy mm. stuff like this sticks in wrestling fans' memories longer than other stuff. Like, I thought that the run of feuds that he had, you know, pre-Hogan, uh, you know, with Andre, Rick Rude, even the one Papa Shango, which I think was after, like, that's the stuff they should have been doing with him. When he gets to, like, trying to be, like, a wrestler's wrestler, like after winning the title and he's going against like Slaughter and, and Rick the second time, that's when you sort of see him failing a bit more because it's the goofy stuff that works well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like as soon as he becomes the IC champion or like going on to be in the main event for the world title, like he can't get away with those short matches. It's like when he's IC champion, I think he would be headlining, the IC champ would headline the B towns and the main champ would headline the A out, A townhouse shows. So, when he's moving to those like, title scenes for the IC and World Daily, he has to main event pay-per-views or he has to main event live event. So those fans have paid their money and most of them would come based on whatever the main event was. Mm-hmm. And so you can't get away with like a two, three-minute match to hide Warriors' weaknesses because the fans might feel off. they didn't get to see enough of the Ultimate Warrior, especially if they if he's who they paid to see. So they had to build matches around him and it really, they do even make here, it depended on who he, who he stepped in the ring with. Like they really... Like DBS especially credit gives a lot of credit to Rick Rude and saying that, you know, it was a real test of his patience getting good matches out of the warrior. 
I know it's a bit of a shame, but again, Rick Rude is a is a great worker, and again, it's that thing of that's why you get a heel in there with a babyface like Warrior because you don't have to really worry too much about the Warrior. All you need to do is hit his comeback and win. It's a bit like his wrestling style. Also, Deal and Barry I mentioned was in this. He basically mentioned his job when Warrior first came in. He worked them a lot of live events to help get him really ready and like give an example of like what like, the WF fans and people behind the scenes an example. See what he could do. Basically, talks about how, like two or three times, he got legitimately knocked out by the warrior because he was just so stiff in the ring. He just came at you with those like lines. He's knocked them silly. I actually thought that um, the Brooklyn Brawler was one of the people who was a bit more complimentary towards Warrior, um, much like what you said earlier about like Edge and Christian and Jericho were all quite positive, but. Maybe, I don't know, maybe uh, Steve Lombardi spent a bit more time with Warrior than other people did mm-hmm. because obviously he had to, you know, do matches with him. He probably was on the road a bit with him because I think later on in the show, I can't remember who said it, it was maybe Hogan. They said that, like, he doesn't travel with anyone. He, oh, yeah, I've got to hear he dresses by himself. He traveled by himself. Yeah. I like Steve Lombardi as somebody who also mentioned Warrior's attitude when it came to interacting with everybody else. Like, like he wanted to change by himself. Like even though what Hogan also had his own dressing room, Hogan would still let some guys come in and change with him and he was working with him where he'd come in and say hello to everybody in the like, main wrestlers locker room and like Warrior the moment that Warrior would say like, Oh, why didn't you shake everyone's hand? I just saw you guys yesterday. But to the extent you can understand because there's a lot of weird wrestling jokes where like, Oh, you didn't shake all those guys' hands. They think they think you're shit now, they're gonna bury you. They, you've got yeah. heat. Then also at times he did didn't do himself any favours by very much not increasing himself and of putting everybody else in the WF at a distance, which made it hard when they had to actually yeah. work with him. I'm I'm sure in the the later uh, documentary, like uh, Warrior mentions that he just he just liked to keep himself to himself. That's just how he operated. He would go, he would do his job, and then he would leave. So he wasn't really, although he was in the business, he wasn't in the business. He wasn't a part of that whole locker room sort of mentality. And I think that's just how just the way he was. A bit like um, just how some wrestlers are, where they just, they just kind of want to go in and do their job and then kind of go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like, Dark Side of the Ring really paints this picture of he was a guy who like found like this path into wrestling after bodybuilding and mm-hmm. really wanted to get in, make as much money as he could before he got out. And he did also make a shitload of money given how he was pushing through merchandising alone, you'd imagine he made a shitload of money. And like I think they do mention that here that like he he wasn't a wrestling guy, he didn't come from that background, he didn't appreciate what he was being given, how the company was doing investing all this in him. And like even DBS goes as far as say like it disgusted me to see him get all this stuff and not like appreciate it. And Bobby Ian even says like you know, he just feels like a guy who came in from a gym and said, I'll give wrestling a go, he didn't care about it. But then again it goes to show he was like he you know your main event at the WrestleMania. You know, it's like you can. It it is hard for him to be like you. Sh- you don't deserve to be here, but yet, you know, he does it at the same time. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chris, there's nothing wrong with somebody coming in from a not from a wrestling background because we've seen guys come in from that background and like learn to love it. Like AJ Styles didn't grow up watching wrestling. He went on to be one of the greatest wrestlers of of all time. But I think attitude at the same time, as well as these background, is what kind of attributes to this perception that he didn't care enough about wrestling or didn't appreciate like the nature of what he was being given. 
yeah, so much about wrestling seems to be about the kind of respect level, which is so weird because it sounds like a wrestling promo. It doesn't sound real, but think about all the stories you've heard of like wrestlers court led by Undertaker or stories about the Miz being forced to dress outside the locker room, stuff like that. So it's almost like you can't be someone that keeps themselves to themselves. I feel like now things are a lot better because there's probably a lot more wrestlers who are like respectable family men as opposed to what wrestlers were like in the 90s. So, um, yeah, it's weird. It's funny because on one hand, he's like, yeah, he keeps himself to himself. But then obviously, once he left wrestling and, you know, got into the mid noughties, he was quite outspoken, shall we say. Yeah, that's a different kind of thing. And again, that's around about the time this documentary is getting made. So I feel like the sort of timing of the this that DVD with just the kind of well, he came out and said, "Was it queer and don't make the world work?" In reference to Heath Ledger passing away or broke back mountain, it was just he was a very outspoken right wing guy, and it's like, yeah, it's not hard to really get on side with the the documentary of seeing how much of a prick this guy was when he was actually doing it without WWE, like sort of saying, I don't know, it's just a weird sort of thing. Of it's it's hard to. It's it's hard to not like the guy John. This it's hard to like the guy John. This period of time. <laughs> yeah, like this definitely would have been that thing where like he was doing all of these speaking engagements and like another reason I roll my eyes at the Warrior. And even though I think like other than the naming after Warrior, the intention around it is good. But either they always treat this out Dana Warrior when they're doing stuff like this or for charity things, they treat it out when simulates through hard that he got introduced as conservative, ultra religious. I say which I don't know if he ever had, he had many of these beliefs that he spewed about gay people on his speeches and this just helped make him feel more comfortable in expressing them or whatever or if he was just sipping their Kool-Aid or whatever but she does play a part in this ultra white wing version of the of Jim Helwig that we that we got and yeah they they even talk about his speaking engagement at the end like well you mean Jane goes well, it makes sense why Jesse Ventura is doing speaking he's very naturally charismatic and well spoken but I can't imagine sitting through a warrior one and JR, he said, like, I'd love to go to one of these lectures just to uh, see if I can finally understand what the hell he's talking about. And Eric Bischoff's there, taking as many jives as he can get in his brief time on camera. <laughs> so, you know, I'd lo- I imagine that many of those people are walking out of those lectures thinking, the hell did we just sit through in? Uh, I, think, I feel like given, it was... Sorry, Andy, but and given what we, we know, what he said, like the one you mentioned, and I think it's his most infamous one, like, I definitely don't think you would want to sit through any of that, like, I think it was that one with the queer doesn't make the world grow. Was uh, it was the young Republicans group of that university that booked him, and even they came out to release a statement saying we regret booking this man. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. It's like uh, I bet when people were like filming for the uh, documentary, like oh what's going on in here? It's like oh it's the warrior documentary, and they're like yeah I'll come in and say something because it's like Eric Bischoff is literally just there for about two minutes, then he's gone. <laughs> like Rick Flair is there. Yeah. Very briefly, just basically like he was at the end, very end, he goes, he was a flash in the pan and just fucks off without taking his microphone off. Like, well, Eric, I know, I don't think you, I think you barely had any interaction. Why are you here? Like, like Flair just can't resist being on a camera. He probably just saw a camera set up. Someone else was made sitting, and Flair's like, oh, there's a camera. I'll sit down. What are we talking about? Warrior? I hated him. That was, I've got to admit, I do love Triple H. Is there hugging the title as he sort of talked shit about the Warrior? Yeah. <laughs> And when Travis gets to talk about the stuff with Warrior and basically calls him the most unprofessional guy or what we call him a dickwad or whatever, 
there's all sorts of stories of like him and him and Jerry Biscoe multiple times during the day at WrestleMania 12 begging like, well, don't mind the quick like squash, just please don't have the spot where you kick out of this guy's finish, and Warrior just wouldn't hear reason. That that bit with Triple H was a, a very strange part of this documentary because obviously this was him coming back the third, no, second time. First time was when he came back at WrestleMania 9 and the second time was he when he came back with Triple H. And uh, But the, the interesting thing was in the documentary, it wasn't Triple H modern day. It was Triple H from, t- what, 2000, I think it said in the corner. And uh, it was just a really weird... It was like Triple H was in full 2000 WWF heel promo, um, calling him a dickwad or whatever it was. He did he did say he was one of the most unpredictable guys I've ever gotten in the ring with and why do you keep bringing this nutcase back? <laughs> Wasn't it Triple H who brought him back in 2014? <laughs> that, would, have... <laughs> that would make perfect sense. Because I think he's also attributed to bringing in Bruno, like many events are there, so it wouldn't surprise me if he played a part in that. But, I know it's the video game sort of they got him in first and it was the whole WWE 2K like cuss where it was like everyone was on the cover something bad would happen to him. Yeah. I mean, when Goldberg came back, if something bad happened to us, we get time to watch him win fucking titles. I was just saying, I feel like we are talking into the uh, talking heads of the documentary just slamming the warrior. So I wanted to just bring up when the during the Royal Rumble when Hogan and him are in the ring and that's still down. I've got it, but I did have chills. I thought that was that is a cool moment of just the two biggest baby faces. It is very rock and Austin, but before rock and Austin. I know, just yeah. went just went played in a bit of a bit of my with a you think you're special. <laughs> Yeah, you can actually tell looking back on it now because obviously I, I saw Rock and Austin when it happened and then I saw Hogan and Warrior way after. You can tell that the moment with Austin and Rock in the Royal Rumble was definitely an emulation of this, like trying to see like how the crowd were reacting to these two guys. Like, could these guys main event WrestleMania? Because, you know, I think Hogan versus Warrior was the first all-face main event of WrestleMania and, and even mm. looking down the years there's not been that many you could argue that like Cena Rock one of them was face or the second one was definitely both face um, and they just don't happen that often in wrestling I actually think that this period between the 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 setup of the match and the rumble leading to the main event of WrestleMania was so good I thought mm. Warriors promos were brilliant I loved I loved 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 Christian and kind of edge as well, both doing their reinterpretations of the promo, and yeah, that that I think might have been the highlight of the whole DVD. Um, and I, and also, right, I thought it was cool at this point when Hogan actually says that. I think he says something like he gave him his all and he hand fed him and helped make him the ultimate warrior. Because yeah. obviously, at this point, there was no time at all where Hogan let anyone else go over him. Um, and I think the Brooklyn Brawler also says that. He became a better wrestler, and he eventually became the total package. Huh. L- love the Lex Luger reference, but like, it's good to see that they did at one point think that he had some level of progression. Yeah, but they put the title not title on him. I can't even speak. <laughs> I'll try that again. They put the title on him, and as I said, it was a good pass in the torch. And I know, like Hogan kicks out on the free, but it's still a great moment. And it's you know, it's I think that match for me was one of the reasons I got into wrestling. It was just like two real life like just superheroes just 
colliding, even though like I didn't know what taste was back in the day. But you know, that was kind of the match that got me into wrestling. So, and I think after probably the match, it got a lot of kids into wrestling because it was just these two cartoonish characters just just running into each other. I think that was the first time what was going to be a long line of moments in the Royal Rumble where guy A stares at the wrestler B and they're hoping the crowd will will pop. Like they were going to do it with like Rock Austin as you said, Chris. Mm-hmm. They also be unsuccessful times where they did it like Randy Orton and John Cena in twenty eleven when people said, Oh God, please no and Nia Jackson and Tamina, despite the fact that Tamina tried to compare it to Rock Austin or Hogan Andre on a tw- in a Twitter post. But <laughs> then yeah, that led to the match uh, at WrestleMania. And Jesus, what a collection of promos to build that must have been because you got Warrior. Hogan's still a little more coherent, but is, you know, he's typical, let me tell you something, brother, and, just, yeah. and shouting it. And, like, you couldn't, you couldn't, that's, this is why Jake Roberts was so good because no one else was capable of whispering in this era. Everyone had, everyone had the Austin Powers issue. They had some problems controlling the volume of their voice. And then, obviously, <laughs> main event. I did kind of get annoyed at Hogan and like, oh, well, I knew when they were all staring at me instead of the new champions, I walked away. But definitely, you know, the, the task in the portrait failed and, you know, I hate to say I told you so. Like, what you mean when you kicked out three, made sure you had to be the one to hand on the belt and slowly, oh. slowly walked, away, walked away so slowly to your wee ring cart as well put that slow walking away music from the Incredible Hulk over the top of it. Yeah. I've got a note on that about Hogan. Um, Hogan is such a dick. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, that's just yeah. how he came across. <laughs> it was just like, oh, the, all eyes are on me. And I was like, yeah, no shit. I think Hogan was just happy he got a chance to call someone else a dick, which is why he was even in this documentary yeah. to begin with. Uh, I want to bring up, uh, who remembers uh, President Jack Tunney? What character? Oh, <laughs> uh, funny Jack Tunney, yeah. They, they, they don't show in the documentary, but if you've ever seen the uh, contract signing between him and Hogan, it's like one of the maddest things ever because it's got the, ca- the 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 normal camera set up where it's like Hogan sat here and uh, Warriors are sat from across from him. But when Warriors starts speaking, the camera is just in his face and he's just like, it's almost like he's looking at um, Hulk Hogan, but he's looking at us. It's just a weird direction, but it is quite funny to watch. And Chris, you mentioned like what I think is probably my most entertaining bit of the documentary for me is Christian perfectly recreating as if from memory like doing his best ultimate warrior impression the snarls and everything like redoing the ultimate warrior promo where basically threatens to hijack a plane that what that hogan is on and drive it into a nose every crash the plane ahead of their match like i mean it doesn't help you know pay a good picture of warriors promo style when they do talk about how nonsensical he talks if they, they, they put a compilation clips all these promos back to back to back. And so we hear one in isolation and may find it a bit weird, but together they don't really help his case. But Jericho is nice about it where he goes, he basically paints a picture of what a kid at the time would think and say, like, I don't understand what he said, but it sounded cool, so I like it. <laughs> let me tell you two words. Which... I, thought saying, I thought you were going to say, let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I've got two words for you, which explains why... You cannot give the ultimate warrior grief for the fact that none of his promos make sense. And those two words are Bray Wyatt. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm talking pre-return Bray Wyatt because since he came back, he's been bloody lovely. But 
everything he did in his whole entire career up until he left, none of it made a single bit of sense. And it's not <laughs> a million miles from what Ultimate Warrior did. Ultimate Warriors was more intense, whereas Bray was just like, I'm telling you, man, I'm walking in the fields and the buzzards were flying around my heads. And then it just sounds like a rambling old lost man. Whereas Warrior at least sounded like a rambling young steroided man. Uh, I'm say the best part of that DVD is the uh, entering into the world of the Warrior. And uh, if Rick James was watching that, he'd be like, cocaine's a hell of a drug. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do love the little bit about parts unknown. Everyone gives their own little derivation. Even Chris Jericho comes out with a whole backstory. You know, he's great. Warrior's great, great grandpa was on this French from the Spanish island. It sounds a bit like. But then everyone has a bit of a laugh and a joke. And then literally it cuts to Bobby Heenan, who has no time for this, going like, yeah, he's probably too stupid to remember where he was from. I don't think any state <laughs> in America wanted to take credit for this guy. But then King perfectly points it. You can't really say he's from anywhere because that takes away from the character. Like Undertaker being from Death Valley is a good example. And that there was a place in there in California called Death Valley, but also not many people will know that, and it sounds ominous enough yeah. to really, you know, work. You know, that's one of the things I never got. Why I never got into Ember Moon as a character. She's this like moon goddess, or whatever. And then there's from Dallas, Texas. Yeah, I liked what Mean Gene said. He was like, "Oh yeah, parts unknown is twenty mi- one miles east of Truth or Consequences." <laughs> just, and then on the on the actual documentary, they had a map of Truth and Consequences and just an arrow. <laughs> it's like, "Oh yeah, it's right here. Just go to America. It's right there. Twenty one miles. Just walk." And then Vince like jokingly implies that he's like from another planet or or something like that. It's just super, but. Let's talk about another time where they weren't WWE wasn't quite in the right here, even though you know there's no real right-sided take on this. I mean, Chris, you and I briefly talked about this when me, you, and Gary talked about SummerSlam night. One, the, the issues with Warrior holding up Vince for money, where well, Warriors claimed that he was just looking for money that he was still owed from WrestleMania Seven, but there's also stories that he was making demands that he just still didn't feel like he was on the same payroll-wise as Hogan, and he thought he should be, and all that. And then, so Vince seemingly feels like he's under duress, so agrees to his demands, but then ultimately fires him as soon as he gets to the curtain. It's like that letter that he gives them and everything. But then Warrior, uh, then Hogan and Sav and Slaughter, sorry, Hogan and Slaughter basically talk about how they basically were looking, they were offering to take him in the dressing room and deal with them, give us five minutes with him. Like Slaughter was even saying that Iron Sheik wanted to break his leg, <laughs> which I can just imagine. Sheep talking like I break his leg, I make him humble. I yeah, do love do, it when it's oh sorry, I was Google Frost Chris. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say I I actually thought this bit of the documentary was really good. Like we got some good sort of insight. Lots of stories that have already been out there in the world already, but good sort of insight into what happened with Hogan, Warrior, Vince around this time. I loved the bit about how um Hogan and some of the other guys said that they would deal with him. Hogan strikes me as the kind of guy that would run to Vince and like tell on mm-hmm. him, but wouldn't want to deal with him himself. I like that Hogan offered to deal with it to Vince, and Vince said, I don't want another lawsuit on my hands. That aged well. Um, yeah, I was going to... Uh, to oh, sorry. <laughs> and, and just a bit at the end where Vince says that he did fire him, but he still paid him the money because he gave him his word that he would do so. And just this whole little bit, I just felt like total revisionist history. Like the Sarge and Hogan all said like, oh no, we would never have done this. We would never have uh, 
we would never have you know walked out for money and I'm like didn't you run to WCW because you got a much better contract and and they get they all said that oh the ultimate warrior wasted the time that they put in on him and I'm just like you're just saying this because it's 10 years later and uh, everyone tries to change the story to make themselves look better I feel like with Finn saying I agreed to pay them whatever I agreed to pay him is something you'll probably see in a future quarterly as well. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I did find it funny when Scott was like, uh, Vince is like, oh, I don't want to have a lawsuit. And then they end up having a lawsuit because of this DVD. And then I think Warrior did try to sue them anyway after this claim that Vince <laughs> reneged on his on promises that he made and everything. And then also the lawsuit around, they mentioned changing his name legally to Warrior, but then Vince basically explains like, <laughs> Track record of an IP. I don't care if you doesn't matter if you change your name to that to the name of that IP. You have no legal rights to that IP. Yeah. Do you know what's great about that when they bring up the Warrior lawsuit and then Jerry the King's like, oh, so stupid. Why like the lawsuit and the Warrior and all that? Is like you tried to sue the WWE for the use of the word King. I know. <laughs> it was like you can't start like slamming someone for you trying to copyright a name when you were basically trying to sue someone over the word King. I mean, very clear, isn't it? He tried to kick up a fuss about Becky Lynch's use of, use of the man nickname uh, back in like 2019. Something like that. Like, and Chris, like, is I agree. Is that Jerry the King that's done that? I don't know, like, Flair. Oh, right. <laughs> like, like, Chris, I think it's a case of, you know, that old adage, you know, uh, history is written by the winners. That's why they were doing these documentaries about, you know, the Monday Night Wars and WCW and ECW so they could paint them in the way that they wanted to present themselves in whatever way they wanted which they probably had the, the power to do so but yeah I love Slaughter and, and Hogan taking them all high ground Hogan Mona but you know, I always had issues with payoffs but I know I would never would you know, kick up this kind of fuss about it like Hogan imagine you never had to worry about payoffs you were always higher paid than everybody else you almost had it written into contracts both in WWE and WCW that people shouldn't be paid as much as you and if they do get a higher pay bump, then you should have your pay bumped up and all that other crap. And like Bischoff and Conrad on 83 Weeks did a whole fucking episode just detailing the different clauses of Hogan's WCW contract. You know, the whole Mr. Stroke My Fu Manchu, that don't work for me, brother. And Slaughter, like he came back to the WF after an absence to do this Iraqi sympathizer guy. The reason he was away in the first place is because Vince wouldn't let him do this deal with G.I. Joe like for action figures and that. And so he left and made money for that. And Vince successfully tried to replace him with Corporal Kirshner or whatever it was. So you both have had issues with Vince. It's just you don't like Warrior, so you're taking Vince's side because, well, because you're probably still getting paid. Yeah. But it's just the WWE and I know it's the, the, the hypocrite, I can't even say it, hypocrites, hypocrisy. Can't even say that word. Because that's what we're saying. Like, say, yeah. I was going to say, you're making more sense than The Warrior has. And I know, you, you, could, you could tell I'm getting tired of it. But it is kind of like when, uh, it's like, I do love it at the part and the fences try to take the moral high ground of what's right and wrong. And it's like, again, hindsight's twenty twenty, And it's the whole, my responsibility is to the audience. I was like, what's that, Vince McMahon? I know. And again, even going as far as to say, it gave me great pleasure to fire him. Like, it just goes to show just what kind of a ruthless bastard Vincent Mann is. And I'm, sur- I'm, say, I'm surprised I didn't go, uh, uh, Vince didn't screw the warrior. The warrior screwed the warrior. <laughs> but then they bring him back. They even acknowledge the rumours of two warriors. 
Do 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 warriors. Do do do. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> and they just joke about it because he's cut his hair. They joke about his weird muscle suit, like flesh coloured muscle suit, which makes him look like he's wearing nothing at all. Nothing at all. <laughs> I quite like the how the the this whole idea that it was a different Ultimate Warrior from the one. I mean, obviously, it maybe come off the gas a bit and that's why he had significantly less muscle mass and you know they put him in the muscle suit it's kind of the same as what they did with was it giant gonzalez they put in this kind of body suit thing for his match with undertaker um but yeah I, it's funny because they say like oh like why did we bring him back you can see exactly why they brought him back even when he was back during the the WWF Raw era of him being back. You could see why he was back because the crowd were going absolutely mental every single night. Um, and yeah, it, it sort of culminates with that instant with Jerry Lawler and the comic books. Just It's just this whole weird period of, of Warrior that ends up basically just finishing his time in WWF for good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we do briefly mention something that is does actually have some truth to it when he leaves in ninety two basically about the strict drug testing policy. Like he might not have been on the stairs as much, but he was taking like a growth hormone, which I think Bulldog was on as well, which is why Bulldog had to quickly drop the IC belt to Sean so soon after the show in Wembley. And then he was out of the company as well. And then yeah, they comes back, they do the whole thing with Triple H. You know, they they thankfully skip over that weird feud he had with uh, with Gold Dust, which had a really, where they had a really shit non-match in your house because Goldust was had a legit knee injury uh, and then the stuff with Daryl Oller where Warrior had to wear a cap because he didn't like the fact that his big glass frame was going to get smashed over even though the glass <laughs> was facing King not Warrior and it just, they were advertising these comic book and I think WWE talked about how the thousands of copies of the comic books they bought and Warrior like, kind of forced them to buy all these copies of the comic book. I think they bought more copies and gave more away more copies than were actually bought. Maybe gave away more free copies of this than anyone actually bought of this fucking thing. And if you want to know more about this comic, go watch OSW's episode about it because it's an absolute fucking trip. The the story on the comic is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, the OSW episode's brilliant. Like my favorite thing is that I think there's six comics altogether. And during the run, multiple times his animator or illustrator, I should say, just leaves him. So he has to get new illustrators. So the comic's changing every time there's new episodes. And one of the comics, he has to stop and explain what's going on in the comic because nobody has a clue because the writing is so weird. And he has to break down that there's three different warriors in the comic that are displayed by different colors of writing. It's one of the most mental things Go and watch the OSW episode on it. Oh, uh, thankfully, they didn't have time to touch on the foot, whatever the fuck districity is meant to mean. He was going on about that a lot at this time. But yeah, they had the comment about the stuff with Jerry Lawler. And then, although one thing where it is crazy about WWE, like they do, he does leave because he claims that, oh, my dad has this, why didn't make these live events, even though he and his dad were strange. And then stories have come out where the timeline of his dad's actual death doesn't line up. With Wayne, mm. even like with a couple of months off from when he actually was taking time off, and then so they fire him. Even though the the day the, the episode they announced his suspension by Grill Monsoon, 
he did a match at that tape, and so they had to air that match immediately afterwards and say, oh, his suspension goes into effect immediately after this, because then he's beaten up by like, Vader, uh, Owen, and Bulldog, because it was meant to be Ahmed, Sean, and Warrior, mm-hmm. and it's like, for an international incident, to which he was replaced by by Sid, uh, which, go look up that clip where he's announced and just see how Jim Cornette's eyes almost fucking pop out of his of his skull when he sees Psycho Sid. But, but there's a poster they show of Warrior for an event they claim he was advertised for, one of the ones he didn't show up. It's not a real poster, they've edited that, they've taken a photo of Sean and put him over it. Cause he oh wow, I didn't know that. Well, I didn't know that, I did some research for this <laughs> because I forgot most of this stuff as soon as I I, I, I turned off, so I thought, like, I, who else has talked about this? I need to find some extra stuff for my notes because I don't want to watch this again. And, like, probably the top match is him versus Vader, but forgot to edit out the bit that says WWF title match. So, obviously, it's a match where Sean and Vader were the headliners and they've just edited Warrior in place. Like, Warrior was not WWF champion in 1996, thankfully. <laughs> and then, obviously, we get to the WCW run. Which is more Hogan and Bischoff pretty much take the reins from here. I, I put in a note as well. It's like Warrior joining WCW leads to David Boy Smith injury. Yeah, if you, uh, if you know about that, Chris. Yeah, I forgot about that. Is it not that the the night that right? So stop me at any point if I'm getting this wrong. But the night that uh, Ultimate Warrior has a match with. Um, Hogan and everyone in the War Games match, in order for them to do that right, they had to have a trap door in the ring because they had the Renegade come out initially dressed as Warrior, do his kind of army bits and smoke blows all over him. So Hogan beats him up in the ring. And then after that, ring is empty. Hogan's like, what? And then Ultimate Warrior runs down the (laughs) ramp, the real Ultimate Warrior, and it's all because the renegade has slipped out of the ring through the trap. But earlier in the night, Bulldog at the same event is dropped on the trap door, which then injures his back, which screws him up for the rest of his career and basically leads to his frequent drug use and untimely death. Very much, yeah. I mean, he was looking at his best at this point. You can see how red and swollen he puffed up he looks, but you know, it doesn't. It looks even worse when he returns the following year to the WF and he's and he's blue jeans, and everything. But like, what's what's so frustrating about this? Yeah, oh, they didn't tell him that he there was a trap door in that ring. How about this? He's got two rings for a war games match, and the whole thing is the undercard alternates between rings. They did that for the three rings at World War Three as well. Tell everybody, don't use the left ring. Everyone go into that ring. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe thought, oh, that'll give away that something's happening in that ring. Nobody nobody is that smart in 1998. <laughs> like, oh, they could avoid this so badly. The thing is, Warrior, Hogan leaves the cage as soon as Warrior gets in. He, like, because Warrior's going through the end of the NWO and that. And so Warrior chases after him, but he doesn't run out the door. He grabs on the, the roof and kicks part of the cage wall in to climb out and somehow injured his leg kicking out the side cage because you can't properly get it open wide enough. Like, run out the fucking door. Well, there's a trap door. That'll take you under the ring. Crawl out. Fucking idiot. <laughs> I'll, I'll become Bobby Heenan in this documentary. 
<laughs> yeah, I, w- I watched that match for the first time very recently, and uh, it's so annoying because see if you look at the names that were involved in that match, it should have been brilliant. It had every big star that WCW had at the time, and the match itself was just so bogging. Mm. Uh, and uh, of course, they had to keep doing angles to keep you know, Warrior and Hogan tidying over so that they could draw it as much time as possible. But I think it's Bischoff that says in the, the video that like the the well ran dry with Ultimate Warrior and WCW very, very quickly. Uh, I think he said the reaction the reaction was initially very, very good, but it just it just ran out very quickly. And also here I didn't like this either. Hogan, Bischoff, Mean Gene, they all had issues with Warrior bringing up the previous match with Hogan. But I was like, that was your intention from day yeah. one of bringing him in. So again, it's just more revisionist history. Yeah, it's that whole thing where the, the one big no-no is really bringing up like when you got, and I say like, that's mostly promos, most of the promos that ever happened. And that again, as you said, that is one of the draws of, it's like the, the only second time this match has ever happened. Yeah, and uh, uh, the only upside of this was at least Hogan admitted that he was the one that wrecked the match with the that Hogan and Warrior eventually had at Halloween Havoc, I think it was. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it was Hogan that messed up the the you know fire paper thing, and I was fully expecting him to be like, "Oh yeah, the the guys in the back they gave me the wrong paper, and my lighter didn't have any." Gas in it, and I, I just bet. Uh, you know what that happened, brother? It was the ghost of hell that came down. He blew it in my face. It's so stupid. But yeah, at I, least he actually stood up and admitted that it was him that messed up. Yeah. I, I, I loved as well that afterwards, Bischoff is like, I mean, Hulk Hogan can't necessarily have a great match with everyone. And I was like, did you mean <laughs> to say anyone? <laughs> I mean, I, I've watched this match. I, I'd avoid this match my entire wrestling fandom. And then Stephen Wilson, the absolute cretin that he is like this for our wrestling so I had to eventually watch this match and everything I thought it was going to be it was worse than that when I watched it it's just the fact that Warrior despite the fact they immediately forget about it afterwards initially does sell the fireball despite the fact it's nowhere near him it's not even second hand heat it's fucking fourth hand heat by that stage he's that far away from it, I, I really don't want to fucking talk about this match and Horace Hogan the, giving him the lightest chair shot in human history. I will go back to that War Games match, by the way. I'm going to read you, it's like three teams of three. Try and guess who was put in this match to take the pin. you got Team WCW of Warrior, DDP, and Roddy Piper. Team Wolfpack, Kevin Nash, Sting, Luger. And Team NW Hollywood, Hulk Hogan, Bret Hart, and Stevie Ray. <laughs> so true I mean there's nine wrestlers in that match and eight of them are Hall of Famers I think uh, Harlem Heat are already in aren't they so maybe yeah. all nine will be Hall of Famers well actually I think Lex Luger is the only one that's not a Hall of Famer oh yeah that is a travesty absolute travesty no it's like Sesame here one of these things is not like the other one of these things is a job <laughs> uh, yeah like I agree with you guys are saying like Basically, the whole intention of bringing Warrior in, you want that big reaction from him in. Like, you want people to remember the Warrior, which is which isn't hard given he was on TV only two years ago, but also remember the fact that he had a feud with with Hogan. And if you remember that feud, then you know that Warrior won. So I'm not mentioning it like doesn't factor into it at all. Also, mm-hmm. Hogan 
Play, talk about things he took credit for. Takes credit for uh, taking the piss out of the warrior with the renegade. I uh, like taking credit for the renegade is your idea is like taking credit for the fucking room or the rise of Skywalker. Like it's not something anyone should be being quick to, you know, stake their hat on or take their claim to whatever the fucking expression is. But yeah, pretty much they just say it fizzled out and they couldn't come to terms because of the money that Warrior was probably asking for. But once you did him versus Hogan, what more was there for him for him to do? Like Warrior's not going to match the fucking WCW Thunder. Yeah, um, the, I think his it was his final involvement not just saving Virgil from a run-in or something like that, or saving Horace Hogan from a run-in, something like that. It was uh, Horace, Horace Vincent gave Virgil a TV beating up the second member of the One Warrior Nation, if that makes any sense. Oh uh, yeah, I forgot about the One Warrior Nation. <laughs> it's Leslie, he, fucking the disciple, which, which is funny, like NWO, Get it one warrior nation, O W N. It's NWO backwards. It's like relic and TNA, it's killer spell backwards. It is a bit of a end of a whimper there, Stevie Dean. The legend has it that the warrior is still in that mirror and only Hulk Hogan can see him. <laughs> Hulk Hogan and everyone else except fucking Eric Bischoff. Aye. <laughs> but enough, they like do all this, like guys all making these comments, calling them all sorts of names. But they end on Jericho and like guys of Jericho and Edge comment on, which weirdly makes it have like an almost happy sort mm. of end. But then they also have to give a big disclaimer: or your or your name is a registered copyright of Warrior Creations or whatever because of Warrior and the whole Warrior University, Warrior comic making all this license and stuff by changing his name to Warrior, which could do all our jokes about like is his wife Mrs. Warrior, his kids are the little Warriors. <laughs> so it kind of ends on a kind of a Eh, kind of note rather than a banger or a whimper, so it's kind of in the middle and the ending. But yeah, then it just sort of ends after they're done, like thinking of new insults for him. But I wanted to give you something actually interesting about this kind of documentary. It does even involve Warrior before we go into final thoughts. Did you know that they wanted to do a similar documentary of this style about Bret Hart? Was it Bret? I knew they were going to do a self-destruction of, and I thought it was like Jeff Jarrett. I, I couldn't remember who it was, but yeah, I, I remember hearing about that. But Bret Hart's a surprising one. Yeah, I think it was around this time because they wanted Bret in for the Hall of Fame, and so they planned to do a documentary called, like, it was called, it was called "Screwed: The Bret Hart Story" or whatever. And they had notable people who didn't like Bret or had a history with with Bret, like Sean and King or whatever, involved in this. And this is when they wanted him involved in the Hall of Fame. And they're like, Where? so, like, sign this deal, we'll bring you back, we can do a license and stuff with you, bring you in the Hall of Fame, make a documentary with you. So basically, almost nicely, in a way, threatened him, basically, like, you can come in, and we can, you can actually be involved in a documentary that paints you in a positive light, or we can basically make you out to be, again, the guy who screwed himself and tried to leave and not lose to John Michaels or whatever that bullshit was. And Brett basically says, like, this guy had the power over everything I've ever done. Like, he owned all my WF footage, he owned WCW footage, because obviously they bought WCW. Mm-hmm. So basically he didn't want his legacy to be tarnished by Vince, because Vince basically controlled his legacy at that point. So when Brett agreed, they changed it into a different documentary called Hitman. And I want, and strangely enough, they took out, they didn't involve King and Sean in the end, they basically took and involved people they knew would talk positively about Brett. 
Yeah, I think I think they. Uh, I read about that uh, Bret Hart documentary, and I'm like, I'm actually really happy that they didn't do that because I feel like th- this documentary that they, they did with Warrior, this really really hurt him. And you you saw that you mentioned earlier that in his Hall of Fame speech, he brought up repeatedly how much he hated it and and just how bad it was. I I just. There's this thing in wrestling where if you're basically any former wrestler, you're probably held in a relatively high regard by the WWE, except Benoit, um, because you know they 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 look after all their old guys. There's there's always something on them about the network, and stuff like this just didn't really happen. And I feel like if they had have done it with Brett, then we probably would never have gotten any returns to WWE TV mm. by Brett ever again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can't reach a happy medium at that point. He did this, he did the Hall of Fame, didn't appear at WrestleMania. They want him involved in the Sean Vince feud at the time. They would take it till 2010 for him to finally properly mend any fences and have him appear like in a WWE program, like being on Raw and stuff like that. But then Warrior obviously would make amends with WWE for his Hall of Fame. I actually think, give it a quick search, I think it was actually Linda who's credited for bringing the warrior back and mending fences, and she actually, because of that warrior, asked her to induct him mm. for his whole speech, which, you know, yeah, get the get the one that's worse at public speaking out of the McMahon family, <laughs> give a speech about you, yeah, that's a good idea, warrior. <laughs> ah, but guys, we're, we're wrapping this up. I think this is still long, and this documentary deserves to be talked about, but I'll go to Andy <laughs> What are your kind of final thoughts on the self-destruction of the Ultimate Warrior? I, I, I did enjoy it, and I think it is an interesting documentary that it should be watched to see a different light on a guy. And again, as Chris said at the start, the guys have came out and said when they were getting interviewed for this, it wasn't a, a sort of, let's take the piss out of... Um, the warrior it was just these guys didn't like the warrior and it doesn't take uh, that much of a google search to find out why he was the way he was but i think it's an interesting insight and it, and it feels very interesting it's 2005 and it's before like all these shoot interviews and it's just like these wrestlers under contract with wwe are all shitting on a wwe guy and i just think it's really a weird weird sort of relic that just should be seen by a lot of people because it's just it's just an interesting documentary what about you, Chris? Yeah, I, I'm kind of the same as Andy. There's bits of this that I really, really liked. Uh, I really liked that it essentially was a career retrospective on The Ultimate Warrior, which is a thing that a lot of wrestlers, sorry, a lot of, a lot of wrestling fans would have never seen because he's not one of the guys that they brought back year after year, like, you know, Hogan, you know, Austin's been back a bunch of times, The Rock's been back a bunch of times. Younger fans will have no idea who he was, especially fans in 2005 that you know there was no mention of warrior for a good while before this i thought that the dvd did great uh like getting the content from edge and christian and chris jericho i thought getting them over as like massive fans of the warrior was really great but i think almost all of the rest of the comments were nonsense it was quite heartwarming to see people that are no longer with us like it was great mm. hearing the comments from bobby heenan and it was great to see mean gene talking again because they're both brilliant because obviously everything in the documentary is kind of in one foot and promo in the way that they speak 
I would love for this documentary to be redone. I've not seen the Dark Side of the Ring episode that they've done on him, but I'd love to see a full career retrospective on Warrior that's done right. Because obviously, like for the most part, the the best in the world documentary that we did in the last episode that was really great. They did pretty, they did a pretty good job of getting CM Punk from day one to whenever he was holding the WWE title. So yeah, I'm kind of kind of mixed on it. I, I there was bits of it I liked, but a lot of this was just, you know, throwing Ultimate Warrior under a bus, whether he deserved to be under said bus or not. What did you yeah. think, Scott? I'm glad you asked. Uh, there, there were bits that I did like, stuff with Christian and that, and stuff I didn't like, and the rest of it I just felt apathy for. Uh, it wasn't the most interesting documentary, I don't think. I think maybe because I've heard other stories and other documentaries about Warrior, there wasn't as much in this documentary that I didn't already really know about him. Uh, and then, like, it's mostly going through these QRs and basically like, occasionally just going, oh, the guy behind the Warrior was a bit of a dick. So I think for fans who didn't know a lot about the scenes, I don't think there was that much for them to really sink their, their teeth into all that much. So, yeah, it's not really the best documentary I've ever seen in a I've already forgot. I remembered some of the details about it because I wrote notes for it and I've talked to you guys about it, but I, I bet within a couple of days I'll forget most of this documentary. Yeah, well, anyway, let, well, let us know what you guys thought. If you've seen this documentary, are you a fan of The Warrior? Are you, do you think his legacy is tarnished by his, his legacy of homophobia or do you still hold on to some sort of childhood nostalgia? Did you have a legal like DVD copy of this from years ago <laughs> somewhere in your collection or do you have to search for it in the means that we did let us know answer to all those questions at SuperHitsReview on Twitter Facebook and Instagram uh, our community page Super, at Eat Sleep SuperHitsReview community follow us on TikTok if you're so inclined we might have some warrior related funny videos maybe maybe we'll put a video of Christian doing his uh, weird impression of the ultimate warrior but you should uh, follow us on there Check out our back catalogue of all the good feature shows that we're doing. Like the last episode of this, the punk episode, if you haven't watched or listened to it already. Uh, check out Wrestling Mixtape. Uh, Chris, you were on a recent what you were on last week's feature show, a pay review look back about the Royal Rumble nineteen ninety seven. Oh yeah, it was so good. I'd never seen the pay per view in full before. I would strongly recommend, Scott, that you go away and listen to our episode on the Survivor Series from 1996 before going away and listening to our episode on the Royal Rumble from 1997. Paired up quite nicely. The best period of Psycho Sid's career. I have developed a love for that man through this podcast in recent years. And uh, yeah, it was just fun to go back through that. Was a Royal Rumble match that I've never seen before because there's still a couple out there that I've never seen. Um, so yeah, it was a really fun episode to go and do. Well worth a listen. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, you'll check out Quiz uh, Showdown. Uh, Rumbling and the Mumbling, or whatever it's called, me and Andy are involved in that. Andy does very well for himself, if I do say so myself. Uh, he's every, with every edition, he's learning. Uh, I'm learning. <laughs> uh, he's hi, he's Chris. Hi, Super Nintendo McCloyd. <laughs> Uh, I can't anyway. resist the matter, since I'm sure. 
<laughs> also got Thatcher Draft Live uh, every Saturday. Andy was on every step so that this is coming out after the Royal Rumble. So by this time, Andy could have been the most recent season winner if everything goes its way at the Royal Rumble. Uh, uh, just just for sake of prosperity, Andy, congratulations or commiserations, depending. <laughs> well, I look forward to the uh, the draft, uh, the tag team draft. So whatever, it would be good to see what happens next. It definitely will be. I think. I think it was this. Hopefully, the selection show will be about to happen. Uh, also, check out ESSR Central. Uh, sometimes on Thursday, sometimes it moves about. Uh, me, Ross, Chris, me, Ross, uh, John Ashwood, and David Hawk may all be in different forms or another in the most recent episode, episode 101, because uh, we forgot to celebrate the 100th episode because we didn't know it was the 100th episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, also on a Tuesday, along with a few shows, East Meets West is on the first Tuesday of every month. Every so often you'll get a little bonus episode of that as well. So much fucking content. It's no wonder we're all so tired. So, <laughs> time to go to bed. Thank you very much, Andy, for staying up. <laughs> no worries, it's a pleasure. I'm going to go to bed. I'm up at six in the morning. So, And thank you, Chris, for burning the midnight oil as well. Thank you, as always. I look forward to more wrestling documentaries. Yes, and hopefully we get something a lot better. If you have any wrestling documentary, you know, recommendations, let us know on our community page or any of the social media platforms I already mentioned. Thank you, everybody. I have been Matt McLeod. I am way back for a nap. It's somewhere in parts unknown. We'll see you next time. There now follows an enthusiastic advertisement for Quiz Showdown. Hello guys, welcome to Quiz Showdown. I'm Daniel Campbell and in this show you're going to see the members of the Eat Sleep Suplex Retweet team go through a very strange quiz. We don't know what the heck's going on with it, but you're going to have to watch to find out. Go check out on the YouTube channel now. That was an enthusiastic advert for Quiz Showdown.